This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners, our guest this week is Edward W. Marks, Chief Digital Officer for Tech Mahindra Health and Life Sciences. As CDO, he oversees digital strategy and execution for providers, payers, pharma, and biotech. Ed has a phenomenal career leading the development and execution of digital strategies that position his organizations for success and long-term relevance. Ed was previously the CIO at Cleveland Clinic, an $11 billion health system with facilities in Florida, Nevada, Toronto, Abu Dhabi, and London. Prior to joining Cleveland Clinic, he was the CIO for the advisory board in the NYC Health and Hospitals, Texas Health Resources, and University Hospitals. Ed's a fellow in the College of Health Information Management Executives and the Health Information and Management Systems Society. He's won numerous awards, including the HEMS Chime 2013 CIO of the Year. He was recognized by CIO and Computer World as one of the top 100 leaders. Becker's named him as top healthcare IT executive in 2015. And in 2016, he was one of the 17 most influential people in healthcare. He's also authored five books, including the one that we're going to talk about today, the 2020 healthcare bestseller, Healthcare Digital Transformation, How Consumerism, Technology, and Pandemic are Accelerating the Future. Eric, what I love about Ed is healthcare is experiencing this digital transformation that's been decades in the making, and he is one of the premier leaders of this big tech revolution. And it's more than a, a tech-focused audience conversation. To successfully navigate this digital transformation journey in healthcare, we need forward-thinking strategic leaders who are willing to take charge, embrace technology-led innovation, and boldly position their organizations for a digital transformation that's continual. It's so awesome to have Ed Marks as a guest today. He's one of our leading experts on AI, machine learning, and other disruptive technology innovations in healthcare. In this area of COVID-19 disruption and heightened consumer expectations for care delivery, Ed is the trusted advisor that healthcare organizations go to for advice on how to proceed in their digital transformation journey. Consumer-centric 
data-driven care delivery enabled by tech innovation. It's necessary for achieving value in our country. In his book, Healthcare Digital Transformation, Ed provides a blueprint for digital transformation success. The insights he shares and that we'll discuss today on our podcast episode enable healthcare and technology executives with what is needed to win this race to value. Edward W. Marks, welcome to Race to Value. It is great to have you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this opportunity to speak with you all. Well, Ed, I think the last time I saw you, it was in Austin, Texas at South by Southwest. And I remember being surrounded by celebrities and rock stars. And I, I saw you at a restaurant on Congress. And that was my like, like rock star moment. Like I was like, oh my gosh, Ed Marks, man, you're, you're the coolest guy ever. So it, it's really great to have you on the podcast. I'm a big fan of your work and really look forward to talking to you today about digital transformation. Well, I'm, I'm a great fan of Race to Value as well. One of the best podcasts I listen to on my daily jogs as it makes my rotation. So I'm really thrilled about speaking to you. Yeah. And any good things that I've done is really on the backs, if you will, of some awesome teams. So I have to give all credit to uh, the teams I've been able to serve with. Well, Ed, you have a lot of interesting things in your background and, and just wanted to start there today. I mean, your parents were Holocaust survivors. You're an Ironman triathlete and Team USA duathlete. You climb mountains, you love to tango, and you're a cancer survivor. And I think about the famous phrase that Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living and how he made a distinction between people who watch life and those who truly experienced it. And you're someone I think of that chooses to experience life for better or worse. And this encapsulates one of your philosophies, risk boldly and often. You write about that in your book, Extraordinary Tales from a Rather Ordinary Guy. And there was a story in that book that really connected with me. Years ago, you climbed Europe's highest mountain, Mount Elbrus. And when you reached the summit, you experienced the highest of highs. And then while touring St. Petersburg, after you got down from the mountain, people in the village asked you about why you would put your life in danger to climb a mountain. And you responded something with something to the effect of, you know, life is short and a sheltered life really is no life at all. And then uh, literally almost moments later, you see two young ladies get hit by a vehicle at, at the intersection of the Kazan Cathedral, and you held them as they took their last breath. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, how did that experience really reaffirm your approach to living life to the fullest? And how did that influence your career as a CIO? Also, I, I, as I understand, you recently had a bout with prostate cancer. And I wanted to just ask you, like, how is that? really informed your life? And did it give you any perspective about what our healthcare system needs in terms of digital transformation and delivering better outcomes for patients and improving patient outcomes? Yeah, wow. I could immediately remember and sort of have chills of that scene in St. Petersburg and that talk that we had right preceding that. And it just reinforced the fact that our life is short we don't know how much time is allotted to each of us. So we really have to maximize it. There are some people that say, oh, you got to chill out. You got to relax, just kick back all the time. And I understand the value of that, right? We all need rest. But I wanted to make sure that I did rest, but not too much. And so it's really true, man. If you want to have 
amazing experiences. You got to go out there and take risks and do fun things and do challenging things that take you out of your comfort zone. And you learn so much about others, yourself, the world. And so it really makes for a more rich life. I always tell people that I'm okay actually dying. I, I'm at peace with myself because I've done everything that's been on my heart to do. I don't want to be one of those deathbed confessionals where I'm going to have a list of, I wish I would have done that or this. So that's the way I've approached life. And it really did come home at that moment where these were these young girls. It turns out they were college students. They were about 19, 20 years old, 21 years old. And it just, wow, like hit you like a ton of bricks, you know, their life just suddenly ended. And so we, we knew that what our purpose was, right? We thought, oh, we're trying to climb the seven summits, you know, the highest peak on every continent. But then we realized, no, 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 it's more than that. You get put into circumstances and places. And if we had not been there, I'm not sure what would have happened. I don't think it would have been quite as pleasant of a bad situation that it was because, you know, we had medical training and those sorts of things. And while the crowd, the mob just circled around and did nothing, we were able to take some action and at least hold their hands. And so, you know, it just reinforced that, yeah, you do stuff, you get out, you learn new experiences, but there's always a hidden reason. And it's up to us to discover what that hidden reason is. You know, it was similar when we climbed Kilimanjaro, we created a medical clinic in Tanzania that still exists today. And we hear reports every once in a while of just the amount of lives that the people there that now run it have been saving. And, and so it's like, did we climb was it for ourselves to do Kilimanjaro and be able to brag about it? No, not really. We, we left a, a bigger mark. And so that's sort of a life philosophy. And, and I think it helped me with the cancer, right? It was like, wow, really? I've got cancer? You know, it was a pretty serious cancer and I had to have a pretty radical surgery. So the, the good news is that I'm completely healed and that I was able to take advantage of great clinicians and, and my family was just amazing, especially my wife. And it's through that, that again, it just reinforces, come on, you need to find out what your purpose in life is. And then you need to live it to the fullest because you don't get second chances very often. And I've had a few and it just reinforces this whole philosophy that you really need to maximize your time on earth. Well, Ed, as I think about our discussion today on digital transformation, I was reminded of a quote by John F. Kennedy, and he said, when written in Chinese, the word crisis is composed of two characters. One represents danger, and the other represents opportunity. So here we are. We have this COVID-19 pandemic crisis that's reshaping healthcare with technology, and that is the opportunity that we have to escape the danger of a system on the verge of an economic implosion. And in your book, you write about how this accelerated path to digital transformation is the biggest opportunity to eliminate friction in the healthcare value chain and create a new era of patient consumerism. So it seems there has been progress over this last year in digital transformation. I mean, we've seen a sudden upscaling of virtual care capacity and a mainstreaming of telehealth. Nonetheless, we still have some substantial headwinds one is really the, the glacial pace to which our industry is shifting from fee-for-service to value-based care. For example, in your book, you make reference to the catalyst of payment reform research that showed that upwards of 90% 
of value-oriented payment is built on a fee-for-service foundation, and only a single-digit percentage of total dollars flowing through payment methods are linked to downside financial risk to providers. And Healthcare Payment Learning Action Network recently released its aggressive new goals for moving the broader market from fee-for-service to value through the adoption of APMs that include downside risk and they're uh, stating the goal of having 100% of Medicare payments, which includes traditional and MA, tied to risk and 50% of Medicaid and commercial payments linked to downside risk models. So my question for you is, you know, if the primary force driving digital transformation is the shift from fee-for-service to value-based care, how should leaders be framing their vision? Should CEOs be confident in selling their boards on a bold and visionary digital transformation strategy? given the economic imperative for value-based care, coupled with the groundswell of consumer pressure for consumer-centric tech-enabled care, or should they be thinking differently? And as an advisor to organizations on a digital transformation journey, what would you say are keys to developing a digital strategy? Definitely a lot of good things happening from a bad situation. So we need to double down on that opportunity because it would be twice as bad of a situation if we did nothing and we went back to the status quo. So we had lost all of these lives, significant economic disruption, and had nothing positive as an outcome. So it's almost like an ethical responsibility we have to make sure that out of this bad situation that good things can happen. And certainly digital transformation is one of them. And it's for the, some of the reasons that you just cited. Certainly we have to completely re-engineer, reimagine the financial aspects of healthcare today and move swiftly into value-based care. We, it's clear that fee-for-service has not worked well and because there's not aligned incentives for one. And now we can no longer use technology as the reason for any lapses in or gaps in these uh, processes and why we haven't gone further than we have. So the technology is there and I believe the consumers are there and demanding change. I think it really comes down to leadership. And I know that's sort of a harsh statement, but I really believe that we're in an excellent position now with all of these forces aligned that I just referred to, to really execute and really digitally transform. And the other thing is the quality of care. It's important financially. We all know the GDP numbers of healthcare and it's, it's way more than any other developed nation, but yet our quality indicators are average in comparison. So we know that we could really move the quality needle as well. So not just the financial aspects, but the quality, which is what I'm more concerned about because I think we have a lot more room for technology to enable care, to enable better outcomes. So those couple of things are going on. But the other force that we allude to a bit in the book, and I don't know that on the provider side, when I say provider side, I'm talking like hospitals and, and large physician groups. I don't think we quite understand the velocity of change and digital transformation that is happening in other sectors of healthcare that will soon completely disintermediate healthcare provider side as we know it. And the thing is, that's a little bit, I don't want to say frustrating because I don't want to come across too negative, but I just deeply concerned. So what's happening is 
in this disruption, you're going to have new players entering the market, taking care of patients. And I know what I'm about to say is a little bit controversial that may not have the same best interest in the patients and the communities that they live in than a traditional provider like a hospital, right? If you think about a community, hospital is somewhere in the center of the community. It's where people get care. It's where hopefully people are getting wellness and it provides jobs. And it's just a really integral part of the community. Now, if you start having other organizations taking care of those patients in the community and that hospital no longer becomes part of the central part, the heartbeat of the city, I think you're putting things at risk. And so again, I think the writing is on the wall and it's clear because the new entrants, and I'll mention them in a second, they're not shy about telling everyone what they're doing. So that's why I'm a little confused and disappointed why we on the hospital side, provider side, haven't taken much action yet with the whole digital transformation. So what I'm talking about is really the introduction of retail. So let's talk CVS first and Walgreens, uh, Walmart. They all have entered into primary care now in a big way. And again, it's no secret. You can go to their websites or listen to their commercials and they are going after the patient relationship that used to belong to the PCP that was aligned with the hospital. So what they're doing is taking a digital first approach. So they're making it much more engaging, much more about the experience, things that the hospitals or provider side should be doing, and we haven't. And even with COVID, we see a retreat. We saw a high watermark, let's take ambulatory visits as an example. We went from 1% or less of ambulatory visits being done with video to up to 80% April and May. And it's now come down to around 15%. I have a couple of different data sources for that number. And I've also validated that number. So give or take 5%, you're looking at about 15%. Now, some of my colleagues would say, Ed, that's great news. We've we're 15 times more than we were doing a year ago. But I'm just afraid that that retreat's gonna continue. And you see the same with work from home. So it was a big thing, right? Everyone started working from home. And now that there's COVID relief in sight with, with an antidote, you're seeing a lot of companies talk about, okay, here's how we're gonna transition back. And I'm thinking, why? I mean, in some cases you need to, I understand that. But generally speaking, why? So let me go back again to what I was saying. So the new entrance, being retail, and I gave some examples, but the other one is payers. So while healthcare providers really suffered during the pandemic, the payers on the other hand, were able to save a lot of money. So they have a lot of money to spend. And again, this is all publicly available information, but I was listening to the United Health Group CEO recently, and it's the same for Aetna. And he was talking about sort of their five growth pillars. And the very first one is to reinvent healthcare delivery via high-performing local medical practices. I don't know how many hospital presidents understand that the biggest PCP base is now on the payer side. It's no longer on the traditional provider side. So they're coming in, they're doing digital things, they're leveraging AI, they're leveraging machine learning, they're leveraging virtual care, they're leveraging digital front doors. They're making the experience much better for patients and their families, as well as clinicians. So just to summarize, because I know I spoke for a long time right there, we do have some digital transformation taking place. I don't think it's fast enough on the provider side and the new entrants being retail, being payers, just as two examples, you've got big tech and pharma as well. But those two bigger examples, they're coming in, they're all focused on the patients, 
the patients from that used to be the base of the hospital in terms of referrals and things like that are going away, which means that care is going to be directed more and more by these new entrants, which means that hospitals role in their communities and in terms of their own business will be significantly diminished. And unless we catch that really quick, it's going to be too late to make much change. And wow, that's an amazing picture that you've just painted for us. And I want to talk a little bit more about the velocity of the transformation that you've mentioned and and the data intelligence and value-based care, that component of that. And this is really a huge challenge to our industry that you've described. And so let's think about this for a minute. From the dawn of civilization until the early 2000s, humankind generated about five exabytes of data. So thousands and thousands of years to get five exabytes of data. Now fast forward to the modern day and we produce that same amount, those five exabytes of data every two days. And according to the World Economic Forum, the entire digital universe is expected to reach 44 zettabytes of data by 2020. If that number is correct, it means there are 40 times more bytes than there are stars in the observable universe. This just blows me away. These are incredible things to think about. I can't help but think about what this explosion means for the healthcare industry and its transition of value. If we're to live in a future when the entire health system is aligned with improving outcomes, we have to have optimal business intelligence. And that doesn't just come from EHRs. We need to leverage the entire data universe from the internet of things to financial data, claims, ADTs, credit scores, you name it, et cetera. We need to build a 360 degree view. We not only have to build in all these additional pipelines, but we have to take the data from EHRs, which have around 80% of health information just sitting in unstructured notes and entirely unusable because it's not discrete. So how should leaders in digital transformation approach some of these big data challenges in order to create the actionable insights needed to improve population health outcomes? And with the inevitable transition of value-based care, do you think we'll see a more widespread democratization of data? than what we have now in our current healthcare environment? Will we be able to combine new data sets with previously hard to obtain or non-existent behavioral, psychosocial, biometric data with epidemiological and other public data sources? Yeah, it is mind boggling, just the amount of data as you described and the analysis that you just gave and the comparison to the stars. And I think because it is so daunting, that's one reason there hasn't been a tremendous amount of action. And again, I won't be defensive. This will be the last defensive statement I'll make. I, I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer or a negative. My motivation really is to encourage and to enlighten and to just try to get some energy and passion amongst our healthcare provider leaders to really take hold of these opportunities and make change. So we've been really slow to respond you know, I'm sure all of us can find one or two examples of some good work being done, and there is good work being done. We're just not moving quickly enough. And again, one reason is it's so daunting and so overwhelming. But the other reason is we just, again, are not really making the appropriate investments in digital transformation to really bring the new reality or the fourth wave, however you want to describe it, into existence. And so, it, it makes you wonder why, because where you do see some things happening, and I'll give a couple of examples, it's really encouraging because it's saving people's lives, it's reducing the cost of care, 
it's doing all the, you know, the quadruple aim and, you know, increasing customer satisfaction, uh, better for the clinician experience, yet we're just not moving quickly enough. And I suspect it's maybe some underinvestment. And that's where I go back to the new entrance, like on the payer side, where when I talked about the five growth pillars, another one of them was about involving analytic driven insights and really doubling down on AI and ML. So where we've seen it work has been great. So a couple quick examples, I just go to what I know best, but there's many others that you know about and anyone can Google for some other results, but let's just take cancer treatment. Let's go back to PSA actually, and something that the Cleveland Clinic along with a couple other healthcare, progressive healthcare organizations work together to discover and create. So it's very crude instrument they use to detect prostate cancer. It's your PSA score, which is from a, derived from a blood test. And it's really a 50-50 crapshoot, as was described to me, whether or not you have cancer based on your PSA score. So they developed an AI-enhanced capability that also requires a blood test, so not overly invasive, just part of your annual physical. And it can detect and predict the incident of prostate cancer at a 95% confidence level. So you save a lot of money in this case because you are only treating for prostate cancer when you have a pretty good idea the person has prostate cancer. So you're not going down, chasing down costly rabbit trails. The patient experience is much, much better because you don't have this fear that you have prostate cancer when you really don't. And from a quality of care, you're catching things faster. That's one example. I could give many others related to cancer and the efficiency of imaging and and those sort of things. All of them point to, again, almost going back to the quadruple aim of reducing costs, increasing quality, better patient sat, oftentimes easier for the clinicians. Like in the example of pathology or radiology, right? The clinician is automatically leveraging AI so that They don't waste much time on things that are clearly required, no level of that sort of expertise, and can really focus on those images that show a significant threat or danger. So those are the type of AI and ML capabilities that we really need a lot more of. Unfortunately, the examples I give you and that you'll hear from others are really spot examples. They're not pervasive or systematic examples. I just think we need to move faster because, again, not only is it the right thing, but the payers are moving much, much more faster. And if we want to have a chance at keeping our health systems viable, we're going to need to really move a lot faster. Well, Edward, you've done a great job in explaining how there's never been a greater need for technology-enabled healthcare. And I wanted to explore you know, how you go about forming partnerships with technology companies. Clearly, there's been a, just a, a resounding affirmation in the digital health investor community over the last few years, um, even in the, you know, this current year. I mean, you know, despite the U.S. officially entering a recession in February and the spread of COVID-19 affecting global supply chains, consumer sentiment, and public and private markets, U.S. digital Health venture funding is on track to set annual records for overall funding, number of deals, average deal size. In fact, the first half of 2020, it saw more funding than any previous first half of the year, ending at $5.4 billion, beating the prior record of $4.2 billion set in between January and June of 2019. 
We recently had Stephen Clasco on our podcast, and we talked a lot about this emerging crop of digital health companies and how they're being fueled by all these billions in venture capital and how that's really a force to remake healthcare with a technology-led approach. And we're hearing a lot about the promise of these future unicorns and whether or not these, these companies will make it to billion dollars in valuation and market cap and then truly create the scale and impact. But what I learned in your book, and I wanted to explore this with you, is you know, you were, you know, positing that we shouldn't be thinking about just these innovators exclusively in terms of driving a digital transformation in our industry. I mean, there's other groups that are also leaders in this change. I mean, you, you reference data custodians, which are the EHR vendors who own the data and the workflows. And you have enabling platform companies like Google, Microsoft, Apple. You have arbitragers like Accenture and Deloitte that rely on human expertise, scale, and locational advantages to deliver services. So for our listeners out there that are leading a digital transformation strategy in their organization, what advice would you give them about how to form the right technology partnership? So we really painted this picture of a very difficult situation, but as you mentioned at the top, you know, it creates opportunity. And you can look at all these numbers and the situation and put your head down and just give up or, or not take the sort of assertive action that I am certainly an advocate of. So what is one way that you can make a change and make a difference? And you don't have to do it all on your own. And so it really is around the concept of partnering. And you just described several different versions of that. And so that's one thing that I've been a huge advocate for many, many years. And I'll give you some examples and really encourage the listeners to break with tradition and go ahead, take a risk and bring in partners from not only outside of your healthcare system, but outside of healthcare. So I recall, I don't know, I hate to think that it was 20 years ago. I think it was close to 20 years ago. I became a CIO. I was pretty clueless. I was really young. I wasn't really trained in a classical way, but perhaps that's what saved me. But I had a CEO who gave me this amazing opportunity and I ran with it. And one of the first things I was faced with was because we had grown through merger and acquisition of about six different, what they would call PBX or telephone systems. And each one was coming to end of life and it was going to be very expensive to replace each one. And it, they represented like three or four different companies. And there was this new technology that was pretty stabilized. I would not pretty stabilized. It was stabilized in all other industries and it was called voice over IP, it's things we all use today, but back then, 20 years ago, that was new for healthcare. And so when I looked at the cost of, wow, how do we transform university hospitals? This was in Cleveland. How do we transform our ability to communicate? You know, Because video was starting to become big and obviously you need a network to work and transport data and you need voice. So what could we do to really invest in all three of those saving dollars and increasing quality and being able to do some new things. Well, if we had gone the traditional route, one, we would have gone broke. And two, we would have still be left with aged network or an aged video capability. So we reached out to Cisco and directly with John Chambers, the CEO at the time, and we formed a partnership between the two. And we became the first health system in the world to go full VoIP or voice over IP, bringing together a network the network of data, the network of video, 
the network of voice all together into one. And there were a lot of naysayers, like we're going to kill people, you know, and all that kind of stuff. No one ever was injured. No one was ever hurt. And it became a model. We were able to transform the way that we communicate internally. Today, it's sort of, sort of everyday thing. But 20 years ago, it was very novel. And we couldn't have accomplished it without a partnership. And in the partnership, you know, it's a give and take. And so as a result, we were given significant reductions in cost. We we're giving a lot of in-kind contribution in terms of how do we maximize the investment. And it really paid off for both companies. Cisco paid off because now they had a referenceable account. And it paid off for us in major, major dividends and really set the tone for the transformation that took place in that organization. So that's a, an example of digital transformation from some time ago, but the still opportunities exist today. And you've read about some of the high profile ones like Accenture and Google, Mayo and Google. And certainly when I was with the Cleveland Clinic, we were very close to doing something very similar with looking at a couple of different companies. But the reason we did that is we knew that on our own, we would only get so far. Let's just say on a, I don't know, making up an example here in terms of uh, baseball, we, we, we could easily get a single on our own, easy. We could probably get a double on our own, a stand-up double, but trying to go for a triple, that would have been kind of close. But working with a partner, home run. And so that's what I've always been keen on and is a key accelerator for success is really partnering. And then Again, the other thing is look outside of healthcare. So the companies I mentioned all have, are outside of healthcare and have a healthcare practice, but there may be a company out there that doesn't have a footprint in healthcare that you might want to consider, or at the very least, bringing in best practices from other industries. So in a good example, and I'm not going to name the companies just because I'm close with them and I don't want to come off as a, as a commercial of any sort. But we talk a lot about consumer engagement, right? So almost every industry is superior to healthcare when it comes to consumer engagement. So why do we keep looking to our traditional healthcare vendors for a solution? It, to me, it doesn't make sense. This is an example of why we are not moving fast enough. We're, we're very stuck in tradition. And so one of these traditions is, hey, do you have healthcare experience? No, you don't? Okay, we won't talk to you. I'm like beside myself when I hear that sort of thinking, not only on companies, but on people. They always ask that on the resume. We need 20 years of healthcare experience. I'm like, no, I want zero experience. We're seeing that now with the hiring of chief digital officers. Most of them are coming from outside of healthcare. They're coming from consumer goods. They're coming from Disney. And the reason is, and I'm glad some of the CEOs and like the one that you mentioned that was on your program recently, they're very progressive and they're doing that to accelerate the adoption of digital transformation. So back to partnering. So we're looking at how do we create better consumer experience? How do we better engage? Because we all know the more engaged the patient is and their family, the better the outcome and the cheaper the cost. So it's a win-win-win for all aspects of healthcare. So why not work with the company that does Starbucks or whoever you think is really good? Like if you look at your own apps or what are the top apps in the app store. It could be a gaming company. So think outside the box. It's, it's not that hard. It really isn't that hard. The other thing, so partnering and partnering inside and outside of healthcare and these relationships that I've done many, they really do work. So a leader should really pursue these. 
The other thing, and you didn't ask this specifically, but just because it's related, let me just pick this up really quick. It's on financing. So you run into the same obstacle inside of many health systems that are traditionally run. So you have a traditional CFO, just like you have a traditional CIO and you're gonna run into the, some of the obstacles I just shared about not wanting to partner, certainly not outside of healthcare and always hiring from inside of healthcare, is the way that we look to finance digital transformation. We always want to look at a one-time investment. Like if we were gonna get electronic health record like 10 years ago, we would come up with a budget, just making this up, $100 million and the CFO, you know, you have to approve yourself, which is good, you know, go through all that ROI and cases and things like that, that's all good. But they're looking at it as a one-time sort of expense. Digital transformation is just the cost of operating. You can no longer look at it as a project to fund. And that was one thing that I tried really, really hard to embed in my last organizations is that you need to look at digital transformation as just a percentage of your operating cost that's fixed in perpetuity. So think about this. Most health systems do the same with physical plant. All health systems have hospitals and buildings, and they know that you need to do routine maintenance and keep them up. So they allocate a percent of operating budget towards physical plant. Now, how much more critical is digital transformation than physical plant? Because healthcare is moving outside of those physical plants into virtual. So how much more important is it? And therefore, why aren't we investing in the same way? So we still look at traditional ways of making those investments and the ways of financing them. And as a result of us being stuck in transition, we find ourselves behind the competition that we talked about at the top with the payers and so forth. And we need to change in all those different areas, the partnering, the way we finance and the way we hire. Ed, as we look to the future of digital health, there are five major areas of emphasis that you outline in your book. Number one is enabling online patient experiences. Number two, improving caregiver experiences. Three is digitally enabling administrative functions through automation. The fourth is enabling wellness in our communities. And the fifth, creating new lines of revenue. The first one, which you've already just just touched on in your last response is the importance in patient-centered care delivery. And it's a key action step that you recommend for healthcare organizations to reimagine the primary care experience and enable consumers to access care online whenever they need it. And your belief is that having a digital front will be a powerful tool for differentiation and the competitive landscape for control over the primary care experience, which will be invaluable. So when I think about these areas, that personalization and localization are really table stakes for healthcare providers. How should organizations be thinking about how to provide instant access to information and immediate fulfillment of healthcare needs in the post-COVID era. Will the expansion of telehealth during the pandemic make patients more accepting of a virtualized experience or will human interaction at the point of care once again become a predominant focus when we get to a new normal? And I know you've talked about this a little bit already, so maybe expand further or share with us what you think about what should be the provider organization's role in creating these consumer-centric solutions versus looking for partnerships with the tech innovators. How should they be thinking about that? So interesting in my market, so I'm in Dallas, Fort Worth market, pretty large market. The lead commercials, like I work on on my bike in the morning or something when I'm not running and the lead commercials from both the blues and one of the major providers is all about their digital front door. 
find that very interesting because that's what their lead in is to get the to win the consumer, if you will, to win the patient is really enticing them with that digital front door. And I think part of the thing, and again, not to be taken uh, too far out of context, but one of the limiting things I talked about tradition is we've relied solely on the electronic health record. So we just do whatever the vendor tells us. And I'm not gonna say anything negative, but that's not what's happening in other verticals and in other industries where they're really innovating, they're, they're doing new things, they're building additional capabilities. So when you think about your traditional patient portal and you compare that with, uh, again, you can pick Starbucks or, or some other app that you might really like and interact with, it, it's different, it's much better. I mean, I gave the example recently of, my, I have a Jeep, I drive like a, just a traditional Jeep, whatever they're called. And I took it in to get service. Of course, I did it all on my app. It was contactless. It was just an amazing experience, you know? And they kept me up to date on what was happening to my Jeep. And it was really a much better experience than what I received from my healthcare provider, sadly. And I think everyone has examples of that. I've heard examples of people's dogs and things like that. So we've allowed tradition again to get in the way of progress. And I can tell you that the EHR vendor is not going to be there to save you if you start losing your patients to some of these other uh, new entrants. So it's really important to focus on that area of the patient experience. It'll be a little different depending on the particular communities, but you have to have this digital front door type of capability where you can, for those who want it, uh, that they could do everything online. We, we believe that you could do 85 to 90% of any healthcare interaction online. So you're right that some patients will want to come in, right? We've heard stories and studies on elderly patients. They love the social interaction. So they still want to come in. But other than those that truly want to come in, healthcare leaders need to do everything they can to virtualize everything that they do. It'll save time. It'll save money. We believe in early studies, it'll increase the quality of care. It'll increase medication adherence. Think about this remote patient monitoring as an example. We're now finding out because we're doing remote patient monitoring how a patient is doing on a real-time basis where in the past you might say, hey, if you don't feel good, give me a call. And then we had to rely on that call or some sort of self-reporting, but now it's all automated. And so the patient is getting better, faster. They're able to convalesce at home. The cost is much cheaper. So you have to really build out aggressively this capability or else someone else will, and they are, and take it away. That's the other thing, you know, the new entrants, I just focused on two of them and I mentioned two others, but the other one is the digital only concierge. They're coming in and they'd have no brick and mortar. So their overhead is very low and they're taking care of a lot of patients. And again, they are borderless. So they could be headquartered in Dallas, Fort Worth, but taking care of patients in your market in Boston or in Cleveland or in Rochester. So it really, it's no longer like a nice thing to do, a nice thing to offer, but it's something that you have to. And then if you think about it from a more sort of assertive side, I've been speaking about it from protecting your base, but from a more assertive side, it allows you to do the same thing. So it allows you to extend your brand. So you're no longer limited unless you want to, to Dallas, Fort Worth, if that's where your hospital or health system is based, but you could provide care, at least for now, across state borders and you could have a centralized 
ICU in Dallas and take care of patients around the world. You can do surgeries based out of Dallas and do these surgeries around the world. I'm oversimplifying it a little bit, but it's accurate. There's so many more capabilities. So that's really what I would focus on as a health leader is make sure you've got a digital front door. So take whatever your EHR vendor has, build on top of it, make it better, add all the services that make it convenient and do not encourage patients to go back to the traditional way. And I mentioned those statistics early on. We're seeing some of that. I get an email every day from my former provider and they're telling me to come back in how safe it is to come back in. And I'm like, I don't want to go in. That's, that's a waste of time. So you need to be very consumer centric. It's a new day, build it out and you'll retain patients. You'll gain more patients. You'll lower your costs, increase the quality of service. Your clinicians will be happier as well. So it really is a win across the board, but we're just stuck in tradition. You know, Ed, I'm fascinated by this concept of consumer-centric, technology-enabled care. As we move into more of a virtualized care model, I think about the implications of what this has on the future of our industry. I can't help but think about how technology enablement, coupled with the inevitable shift away from inpatient hospitalizations and procedures, results in care being delivered more in ambulatory settings or in the patient home. And that's going to have a transformational effect on healthcare in the next decade. COVID-19 is prompting hospitals and healthcare systems to reconsider how they deliver care to patients. And many see the patient's home as the safest and most effective option for certain conditions and patients. As a result, the hospital at home model where patients receive acute level care in their homes rather than in a hospital is emerging as a promising approach to improve value for patients. And I'm increasingly convinced that virtual physician visits are just one part of a continuum of care that can be delivered in the convenience and safety of the patient's home. And you even mentioned that, I think in your comments earlier, upwards of 80% or more of care can be delivered in, in an online way. So if health systems of the future can deliver care anywhere for both urgent needs and overall health management coordinated with in-person resources, of course, it seems like there's an unprecedented opportunity to build loyalty at a time when consumers are seeking a trusted source of safe, available care solutions. And even last month, CMS launched the Acute Hospital Care at Home program to provide hospitals expanded flexibility to care for patients in their homes. Can you provide our listeners with your perspective on this hospital at home movement and whether or not this is even a real possibility? I mean, is this science fiction or is it real? And if it's real, I mean, what type of technology infrastructure needs to be in place to support increased care acuity levels, ranging from simple virtual visits to home-delivered vaccinations, all the way to hospital-level care in the home? Yeah, hospital at home is a reality. We're seeing that shift happen now. And again, we just need to be more assertive about moving there and not let market forces dictate us. So if there's anything that you're hearing from me on a repetitive basis, it's a call to action. And we talked about a lot of examples why that needs to happen and the benefits of doing it and what the obstacles are. And you just need to do it. So I know one thing we were trying to be practical. If I'm a leader of a hospital, what do I need to do? One is I need to develop a digital strategy. So I probably don't have one. My experience has been about 5% of hospitals have what I would call a digital strategy. So that's the first thing. And you can do a digital strategy in eight weeks. So where I came from, a global, very academic, complex organization, 
we did it ourselves in eight weeks. And then when you add on some of the adjustments, it was about 12 weeks. So you can't give me the excuse that it's gonna cost you a million dollars to bring in some consulting firm and do it. You can do it that way. I just think you might wanna figure out a way to do it faster. So if you do bring in external help, just do it in a way that you get the results faster than waiting on a traditional type of style and approach of six months to a year. But you need to get a strategy And part of that strategy is going to be all about virtual care and the shift from hospital to home. And it is nice. And again, you can't use the technology as an excuse anymore like you could in the past. And you no longer can use the government as an excuse. You know, you were just talking about the changes in the CMS rulings, and they said the genie's out of the bottle on a lot of this stuff. So you can't use that as an excuse anymore. There really is no more excuses. So there's not only no more obstacles except for ourselves, but there's a lot of other pressures, competitive pressures that should really push us this way. So I know that one of the bigger obstacles, and I've touched on this a couple of times, and I just want to give you an example and then really answer the question more fully, is tradition. So I, it was heresy when I told my executive suite, I said, hey, we need to get rid of urgent care centers. And they were like, no way, why, why would you do that? And I'm like, the future is virtual. The future is hospital at home. When we stand up urgent care centers, what are we really telling our consumers, our patients and their families? We're telling them, hey, we're going to set up all this brick and mortar everywhere. So we're within you know, two, three miles of your home and you come in and see us. We're just perpetuating the system that doesn't work, that no longer works. You know, you'll always need an ED of course for real emergencies, but 90% of what you do in a urgent care setting, maybe closer to 100 because the real serious things go to the ED, can be done virtually. Think how convenient that is. So anyways, yes, definitely a move to hospital at home. It should be in that strategy. And we're seeing it now. And again, I won't name the health systems that I work with today, but the only reason some of them are keeping their head above water with COVID right now is because they are treating many of the patients at home. Even patients that are on oxygen and so forth, they are treating them at home. So at first it was discharging patients early with the appropriate, you know, we call it remote patient monitoring with the appropriate equipment. And none of this is expensive or technically difficult. Sending them home early, discharge early. And the better is not to admit them at all if they don't need to be admitted. So you keep your your free beds, not just for those who really need it, the most acute of patients, but so you can continue to do elective surgeries. Everyone's taken a financial beating and people are putting off some surgeries that probably long-term they shouldn't. And now you've solved for both of those things and you're getting this hospital at home. So it's an easy start. It's a very sort of structured start. You start with the virtual visits. You get used to that. You could stand up these things. And I'm not exaggerating because I've done all this and I do it today. You can stand up virtual visits in a week. Then you can stand up remote patient monitoring in less than a week. And I've done this in 72 hours. You can stand these things up. And the only reason I give those stats is to, so no one can say, well, it takes too long or, or what have you. We don't have the people. So then you find a partner that can help you. So I'm just trying to take away all the obstacles. And you do get reimbursed, by the way, as we just talked about from a CMS point of view, and many of the payers have followed. And definitely if you're in value-based care, it, it makes total financial sense. So you have these capabilities where you do the virtual visits, then you do the remote patient monitoring. 
And now you can do even more as you start centralizing some of your capabilities. So some organizations, there's two that I'm thinking about, literally invested hundreds of millions of dollars, built a building, and they call it a, a bedless hospital. Intermountain would be an example. Mercy would be an example. And they're, they're taking care of patients from a centralized unit, not just ICU patients, but other patients as well. So these are patients, obviously, that are still in hospitals, but also patients that are recovering or convalescing in their home. So that's one method. I, now, I believe you don't need, even need to build a building. I don't think you need any brick and mortar. And I think a lot of people are getting used to working out of their homes. And if you have the right technology, you can easily do a lot of all of this virtual. So that's sort of the next level in terms of doing these capabilities. And then it's everything associated with it. It's the physical therapy. So during COVID, I run a lot. As I mentioned, I got a bum knee. I had to get some shots in my knee and then physical therapy. So obviously the shots I went in, but for the physical therapy, it was all virtual. So you can now take care of, like I said, 90% of the patient's needs while they're in their home. And so that is the future. And the quicker we all move to it, the better for all the reasons that we talked about. Again, it's really almost like the quadruple aim, but it's the patient satisfaction is higher. And we measured all this. So I, I tell you this with, with experience, patient sat is higher. The cost was about half. The clinician's life gets a little bit easier in many of these uh, situations because they're at home as well. So it takes out cost of doing things. The, the problem, again, goes back to the fact that we have these enormous physical plants and we don't want to see them empty. And so we want the patients to come, come in. And then what do we do with all these employees? I know this is what many leaders are thinking about. It's a daunting task. What do we do with all of our overhead if patients aren't coming in and perhaps maybe some of the revenue isn't the same as what it used to be, you know, what do we do? It's going to take a massive, massive transformation. And again, that's the main reason or the main obstacle now that we haven't seen a, a lot of assertive moves in digital transformation on the provider side, because it is so overwhelming and it requires such a disruption, but all for good reasons. And thanks for that. I'm really seeing from our conversation how digital tools can be leveraged to enhance wellness, not just for the individual patients, but for populations and communities. And let's follow that uh, discussion. Let's talk about how, as the health system is shifting towards capitated reimbursement models, population health management, these things become important disciplines in keeping patients healthy and, and keeping them out of hospitals. And the digitalization of care delivery processes and the use of advanced analytics for risk profiling and stratification of patient populations will be a requirement for solvency and sustainability for healthcare organizations that are in this race to value. With more financial risk shifting to providers, health systems can no longer ignore the economics of accountable care. It's widely established that health systems and care providers can only influence roughly 20% of a person's well-being or less. The other 80% coming down to the individual's choices and social determinants of health. In your book, you cite some examples of evidence-based programs powered by these digital interventions. You've mentioned a couple in this conversation already and how they're making a difference in community wellness. Your book talks about systems, including Common Spirit Health, Kaiser Permanente, Geisinger, Metro Health, and these are showing early and promising results. Can you provide our listeners with some, some of these specific examples of digital interventions taking place in these or other health systems where they're able to shift away from standard treatment protocols for sick care towards this 
prevention and personalized medicine. Also in this type of care model, how can AI be used for the patient segmentation and driving of interventions that are helping the community? Yeah, you mentioned social determinants of health a couple of times and I never really addressed it. And and I wanna talk about it now and how it helps in the race to value and value-based care and some of the interventions. And it goes back to the digital front door as well and data. So I'm trying to take three or four concepts you just mentioned there and give you a really good example of how you can leverage all that data to really do good in your population that you're serving. So if you think about when you're on an app and when you look at things or you look things up, there's data being collected with every click. And it's pretty surprising if you saw the Netflix recently on social, I'm trying to remember what it was called. There's a Netflix uh, documentary that came out recently on social media. Social dilemma, yeah. Yeah, the social dilemma. And they're talking about all the information that's being collected and how it's used. Well, in a good way, there's a lot of information when you use an app in healthcare that's being collected. And let's just say that I... I'm a user and I'm looking a lot at breast cancer. Now we collect that data in part of the profile. And the other thing we didn't talk about, you don't have to have this, but it really is helpful if you have a CRM or customer relationship management system. It's funny in most industries, again, most mature companies have a CRM system. Healthcare, we have under 10% adoption, although I think it's going to grow here a little bit. And it's really about knowing the patient, knowing the family. And then with social determinants of health, is knowing about their environment and their living conditions and their neighborhood and anything related to food deserts and you know all those sorts of things that are really critical to providing population-based care. So if you start seeing that, and all this is automated, right? No one has the time because we talked about all the data to look at these discrete elements, but all of this is automated through AI. And you can start predicting with a fair amount of accuracy anything that you might need to do to positively reach out. And we all know the examples and they can get kind of creepy. So you have to really balance it when you're on uh, Facebook or something and suddenly you've been thinking about a trip to Hawaii and all of a sudden all these ads for Hawaii show up on your Facebook feed. So it's similar concept where you know that the person's concerned about breast cancer. So you might have messaging on the digital front door that are specific to breast cancer, uh, or it might be someone in that you've risk stratified, again, using social determinants or some other data points, maybe out of the EHR, maybe the zip code, where you realize that they have a propensity for diabetes. And so you start targeting you know, the digital front door messaging or or maybe a new tile appears on the digital front door or becomes more prominent that has to do with healthy eating or diet. So those are some automated ways in which you can lever social determinants of health, all the data in order to ensure that you have a healthy population and that you encourage people towards wellness. So some other examples are you know, and the Cleveland Clinic has been really good at this where they've taken down the cost of their self-insurance year over year over year. And the way they do this is through data, very clever leadership and incentive, right? Because you mentioned, and we all know it to be true that the majority of healthcare really is up to the individual. 
And so you need to incentivize behavior. So their incentives are, are pretty simple, but they're data driven for accuracy. And so it might have to do with how fit you are. Do you smoke? Well, you can't be a smoker there anymore anyways, but I, I've seen that in other organizations. And certainly a few years ago, that might've been one of the screening questions. So I didn't smoke. I wear my seatbelt. I have good lifestyle. I have an annual physical and everything checks out. I have my 10,000 steps or whatever metric uh, we, you want to adopt. And as a result, I pay a lot less for my healthcare. And it worked for me. I mean, I was like with my wife was like, hey, we need to reach platinum level here because, you know, then it's a X percent discount over the gold level. And we had already passed silver. You know, it was almost like a game. But at the same time, it was a financial incentive that drove our behavior. We're healthy anyway. So that's the other thing is do these things work for unhealthy populations? For us, it's just bonus because we're going to do these things, eat right, clean living, that sort of thing anyways. But what about other individuals? So yeah, in fact, it was the entire population. So for the clinic, you'd have to get the stats right directly from them. But generally speaking, 65, 70,000 caregivers, average of three dependents. So you're talking about you know, a population of over 200,000. So not everyone's going to be like the super healthy person, like maybe I'm a bad example. So it works in aligning these incentives, but the only way you can do it effectively is through data. So in the race to value, you need to make sure that part of your digital transformation includes excellent analytic capability. And again, we've relied on the past or what we've known to be true or on our electronic health record. And I'm telling you, the electronic health record, as great as the vendors are, I love them all, as great as they are, they do not have the analytic capabilities that you're going to need to really move the needle in a big, big way. So that's why many have gone outside of their EHRs and adopted different analytic platforms to help them in all of this. And one final time, I'll say, go outside of healthcare. You're going to just get same old solutions with healthcare specific things. Try outside of healthcare. There's great analytic companies or companies that have done something similar outside of healthcare and partner with them. So again, partnering means, you know, reduce costs for you. You can usually implement much quicker and you can be part of something innovative. So there's all sorts of good reasons to do it. But anyways, I'm hopeful that that gave you a couple examples of how you might use social determinants, how you might use data to ensure healthy populations and encourage wellness. Thanks, Ed. Let's continue the conversation on data and the gaps that we're seeing in integration and interoperability. Despite the billions in funded incentives to facilitate a near total EHR penetration among the nation's healthcare providers, interoperability between numerous proprietary platforms is an unfinished business. It seems there continues to be significant barriers, and, and you've done a great job at removing barriers from people's minds. But this technical interoperability and semantic interoperability is a big barrier for many. And, and these are barriers that seem to be self-imposed limitations that come from our current fee-for-service model that rewards data siloing. So as we think about this, how can we get this digital disruption in healthcare right so that we ensure the necessary level of data activation and liquidity to support population health management? And will data blocking issues by EHR companies really be addressed eventually? Also, are we taking the right steps with the FHIR interoperability standard to support widespread data exchange with API-led connectivity? If so, 
when are we finally going to realize the full potential of the internet of things where we're collecting data from the smart sensors and wearables that you've been talking about? And finally, how do we balance this need for a capitalistic market-driven economy that allows many different solutions and data ownership and, and IP protections with the need for interoperability and data sharing and consuming? This one's a little tougher because it's not in the direct control. And you've seen government get involved. To your point, you know, typically it would be a fair market, sort of capitalistic, let the market dictate and make things happen. But I do believe that there has been data blocking. And so the government has had to come out with rules and regulations. And we all know that's only has a certain effect. I think it's, it was needed and I'm glad for it. I, I wish it wasn't needed, but I'm glad because it is needed that it's there. I'm hoping that it will help accelerate the adoption of real open standards and that we can ultimately share information because I think it's a moral and ethical obligation that we have. That's a realization I've been coming to recently in my role as chief digital officer for a global organization, you know, helping a lot of different health systems around the world, is that we have this moral and ethical obligation to really do the right thing ultimately for people to help save lives. I've had my life saved by digital technology. I've had the life of my firstborn daughter saved by digital technology. I've seen it numerous times. And if it didn't save life, it improved the quality of people's care. And at the very worst, it enabled the dignity of death. And I saw that in examples as well. So I'm a huge, huge believer and advocate that we need to do the right thing, even though maybe from an economic point of view, it might not be as profitable, but it's the right thing to do. So I actually get angry and upset when I hear about vendors who are purposely not doing the right thing because they've lost the focus. So I'm pretty big on this. We do need more standards that are adopted quickly. So we have made progress in the last couple of years, right? With open APIs, with Fire, we still have a lot of proprietary systems out there that make it difficult to share information. And even when we agree on sort of a standard nomenclature, everyone has some sort of finesse on it that still requires more capability or more effort, more dollars to ensure that there really is a true exchange of information. And it's not good enough that you just exchange information within other organizations that have your same software. That's just table stakes. I mean, that of course you do that. Of course that should be enabled, of course. But what we really need is true interoperability to recognize that there's multiple systems and they're not just multiple EHRs, but like I mentioned, you know, the CRM systems that'll probably be separate and uh, social determinants of health systems and payer systems. They estimate that there's 15 to 30% waste between providers and payers because the lack of interoperability with that sort of data. I mean, think about, again, the cost of healthcare today and how frustrating that is and how much it drags down the economy. Well, if we had open standards between payers and providers, we could immediately you know, reduce the cost of care, which is good for everyone. So what is the solution is further emphasis, I think, on the government to ensure that the rules that have come out are being followed. You know, there's been some delays and I wish there weren't delays because 
it's going to take that much longer. Is fire good enough? I'm not smart enough to answer that question. And I would have to leave that to someone else. I was glad to see a healthcare specific standard. And again, open APIs seem to be working pretty well where accepted. But you know, here's the last thing I'll say. So just to summarize on that answer is that is a, a real obstacle that's difficult for any one leader to remove. We need more government pressure to encourage the sharing of data and getting rid of individuals or organizations that seek to block data. And the third thing is maybe a look at how do we better do it in healthcare. And we've seen some other companies come in, some big tech companies recently make some pretty bold announcements on how they've done some helping. And it just needs to be done in a way that's truly open and there's no additional charges for it. So that was where I was headed with this brief summary is that sometimes organizations look at this as another opportunity to create revenue. Again, I think it's just a moral and ethical obligation that we all work together, not look for this as a revenue opportunity and not make it so hard. So when they are forced in some cases to interoperate, they're charging such exorbitant fees that the health system can't afford it. So that's what I'm talking about when I say moral and ethical obligations and what some of those obstacles are. We need to make sure that that is not happening. And, and again, I'm a open market type of person. So it'd be rare, very rare for me to ask for more government intervention on something. But I think this is one area where we need it and to make sure there's no price gouging that goes on when we finally do have good open standards. But we have seen progress. We just need it more and need it faster and to reduce or eliminate the cost of data sharing. Well, Ed, as we wrap up our conversation today, I thought a great place to land would be on workforce development for healthcare digital transformation. Here at the ACLC, we believe that value in healthcare begins and ends with the competency of the team. And reskilling and upskilling of the healthcare workforce is going to be needed for this digital transformation that we're speaking about today. As it relates to your work as an advisor to organizations on a digital transformation journey, how should we be thinking about how to reconcile the need for good data-driven business intelligence with having an educated workforce that actually knows what to do with it to improve patient outcomes? I mean, how do we accelerate the future of education so we can really reinvigorate its promise as the surest pathway to personal opportunity, but also providing healthcare organizations with the talent they need to lead a digital transformation strategy? You're right. At the end of the day, everything rises and falls on leadership. Everything rises and falls on our ability to execute. You can have the best technology. You can have the best strategy. But if you don't have the people, then you're in big trouble. You'll, you will fail to execute. I always say, look, give me average technology. Give me average, you know, whatever. But give me above average people and we will outperform anyone who has better technology and, and those sorts of things. So I'm a huge believer in workforce development, and I'm really glad that the ACLC is as well a huge proponent of that. And I think a leader is required to replicate themselves. I think by definition, a leader replicates themselves, and I think that moves on down through the organization. What it means is that you have a responsibility as a leader to make sure that you're raising up the next generation of leaders or not even necessarily the next generation, but someone to displace yourself. You should always be looking to work yourself out of your role. And if we have that sort of mindset, 
all the way through the organization, you know, from an analyst on up, that means that we're continuously investing in people and it always pays great dividends. Even in terms of, you know, I, I know some old school leaders will say things like, well, I don't want to invest a lot in that analyst because, you know, our average analyst leaves after three years. And I'm like, well, do you want an average analyst for three years or do you want to invest in one and have a way above average, an excellent analyst, and they stay for two years, which is the most value to the organization? So the answer is always to invest. And yeah, of course, sometimes people will take advantage of you or the organization, and that's fine. That's what, that's what happens because that's better than the alternative of just having a bunch of average people and, and you don't have the workforce that you need to execute. So there's a lot of different things that you can do to encourage development and not everything needs to cost money. And I would have that in my strategy as well. So we sort of, over the course of our time together, listed out different things you can do. And part of your digital strategy should include workforce development. And so there's many things, as I mentioned, you can do. There, there's the traditional routes, which I'm not gonna mention because I think everyone knows them. So let me give you a couple ideas on non-traditional routes that I've taken and had great success. I like to hire people not only outside of healthcare, but with no experience. Oh my gosh, what are you talking about, Marks? They have to have 20 years healthcare experience. And look, I want to hire someone that's been in healthcare and have that level of experience. I'm like, no, 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 we want the opposite. So I love hiring people out of school. So I will connect with schools. I've done this here in DFW with TCU and SMU and UTD as well, where we went out, we created an internship program. Essentially, we went to the business school and we said, or, you know, you can go to the computer science school if you're looking for like a data scientist. I like the business analyst side the most because then it brings the business acumen as well, sort of the computer science acumen. So whatever it is, go to the school and tell them that you want to hire their graduates. They will be more than happy to work with you. So we would have an interview process, those sort of things. We, we'd select 10. So this is when I was at Texas Health Resources. We selected 10 each year, they were starting their junior year, we'd rotate them throughout IT and give them experience on the service desk as analysts for applications in technology everywhere. And they work for full-time for us, you know, when they have time off, like in the summer, but part-time 10 hours a week during the academic year. And then as they head into their senior year, we ask them, what, what are you passionate about? Maybe it is analytics, but maybe it's technology. Whatever it is, you know, we look for the fit, hopefully it's a fit for both. And then they spend that year in that area. When they graduate and they're bringing in all these new ideas, right? Because they're in, in academics, they're learning all new things and they're digital natives as opposed to most of us who had to learn it the harder way. And so they come in with all sorts of new ideas and energy and vision. And then we hire the good ones. So sometimes it doesn't work out or they, they want to work someplace else or in a different state. It doesn't work out. But we, we received a lot of good uh, it was a great pipeline. So imagine doing that for years, the pipeline that you've created. The other thing that we've done is mentoring. So we select up and comers and we invest a lot of time with them and mentor them. And in that mentoring, give them the tools that they need. So again, let's just say we're talking about analytics. Maybe your mentoring program is specific to analytics and you allow junior members of the organization and they don't have to be in IT invite junior members of the organization that have a passion for analytics or data science and let them be part of the cohort. So we did this every year. 
very competitive process. We had eight slots and we had over a hundred applicants every year. I've done this for many, many years. And that was also a way to get very specific training to specific individuals. And it really does help with the loyalty, with the longevity. Yeah, you do have a couple of people leave here and there, but I would say long-term, you have created a long-term engaged employee. So that's another, another way. Another, a third way is I'll obviously send them to schools and get further experience, but here's, here's another idea. And again, I'm just trying to throw out to you, uh, Eric and Dan, just some other ideas that people might not have thought about. So what we do is twice a year, we meet up with the IT executive team of another organization, one inside of healthcare and one outside of healthcare. And what we do is we learn and exchange best practices. And I'm going to get very specific with you on analytics. So we did this one year with, with a company that had a, an amazing turnaround based on analytics. It was a non-healthcare company. It was a consumer goods company. Amazing turnaround. How they did it was through analytics. So guess what? We suddenly had this amazing relationship as we developed our BI program with this company and they helped coach us on all, all the things to avoid all the pitfalls and all the things to do well. We did the same with Kimberly Clark one year and it was the same area of focus was leadership and analytics. So you learn from others, both inside and outside the industry, and that can really help accelerate your ability to do some of the things that we're talking about in race to value. And, you know, how do we take care of our populations? How do we use data to really understand our panels? How do we make sure that we can risk stratify appropriately? How we can make sure we get the right clinicians to the right patients before they need us? All those sorts of things. There's three ideas, maybe some non-traditional ideas individuals can leverage in order to be successful in digital transformation, especially on the data side. Ed Marks, thank you so much for joining us today and discussing how healthcare digital transformation can make us win this race to value. Ed, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. I hope it's helpful and always happy to speak to anyone that has more questions. Thanks a lot.